everyone, and welcome to Radio Free Menga, episode 7 for June 9, 2013. In this episode, I'm going to talk about synth stuff. And don't worry, even if you're not a synth player, even if you're just a guitar player, or not a musician at all, whatever, um, this is good to listen to anyway, because it goes through the trials and tribulations. <laughs> through those trials and tribulations of how to uh, retrieve, store data, computery crap, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Last week I got not one, but two inquiries about my synthesizer stuff. One from someone who has been following me from way back, and another one uh, that didn't even know I played synths and was asking questions about um, what to get for a modern-day synth. So anyway, I'll start with the latter first. The um, Hold on, I'm just bringing up some information here so I can get this all accurate. I am the type of person, first of all, that... Uh, well, first of all, let me just explain this. I have been playing synths for a long, long time. As a matter of fact, it was my second ever instrument I ever played. Guitar was a distant third. I started playing keys when I was six years old. And then I uh, played it for a long time, and then I grew uh, into professional workstation <clears throat> synthesizers. My... Uh, what did I start with? I started with Casio keyboards, the cheap ones. And then I, the first professional synth, which was not a workstation, was a Roland Juno 60. Uh, for those of you that are synthesizer buffs out there, yes, the classic Juno 60. I did, in fact, own one. And I even did a thing where you loaded and retrieved patches from tape. <laughs> I did that, too. Um, I could get the absolute perfect Van Halen... Jump, that uh, Oberheim synth, I think it's an Oberheim, that Eddie Van Halen plays in the beginning of the song Jump. You know, that G, da, 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 that thing. I nailed that on the Juno 60, that perfect wave sound, that uh, wave brass is what they call it. Well, anyway, I played that, and it had the wood paneling and everything. The, the wasn't a repro, anything like that. This was the classic Juno 60. Do I regret Getting rid of it? No, not really, because there's only so much it could do. I mean, it was, after all, just a sound generator. It didn't do any uh, sequencing. They had no onboard sequencer, because synths at the time didn't have those. So it, anyway, after that was the N-Sonic SQ-1. It was a choice between that and the Korg M1. This was the early 1990s when the N-Sonic and Korg M1 were brand new. And I went with the N-Sonic mainly because it had the ability to use 16 tracks in song mode rather than just the standard 8-track that the M1 did. And the sound quality of the N-Sonic was vastly superior, at least to my ears, compared to the uh, to the Korg. Korg still sounded, uh, their pianos especially, sounded fake. It just didn't sound right. And the SQ, when I heard Dynamic Grand, that was the patch on the SQ. I'm like, oh, that that's it right there. And after begging and pleading with my father, now bear in mind, I got one of these before I got a car, and you'll realize why in a moment. $3,000 for that damned thing. God bless my dad. God rest his soul. 
he's not with with us anymore. But uh, he actually put the money down. I couldn't believe it. He put the money down, and yeah, I got that first instead of a car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for real. So then I played in Sonics for a very long time with the Elisa's Data Disk SQ for floppy diskette storage, and. Then I had a very short stint with a Korg N364, very short-lived synth and a piece of junk. Uh, then I went back to Insonic, and then finally I got an Elisis Fusion 6HD. I have a reason for saying all this, <laughs> by the way, which you'll understand in a moment. So anyway, I finally bought a, a, my Insonic just wore out. Um, I don't own any Insonics anymore because the, the, I just wore out the keyboards. I, it's not that I mashed them very hard or anything. They just they get old. The sensors get old, and sure, I could have one restored, but restoring a synthesizer is ten times harder compared to restoring a guitar. Ugh. Consider it this way. It's the difference between repairing something mechanically and re- repairing something electronically. Or to be more accurate, to repair something that is both electronic and and mechanic, which is a workstation synth, because not only, because he is the thing on a guitar, there unless it's got a preamp in it, there's no circuit board. It's just wood, plastic, metal, steel, whatever, uh, all mechanical, it's like a Fender Stratocaster, that's all 100% mechanical thing. Then you go into synth territory. Okay, what do you got there? You've got the mechanical of the keys. You've got the electronic of capacitors, circuit boards. Then you have uh, a combination of mechanical and electronic with the sensors, especially if the keys have aftertouch and things of that sort. It's uh, a very trying experience to restore a synth. People who do this sort of thing, it's kind of almost like sort of kind of similar to restoring a jukebox. Because you've got physical and mechanical, uh, excuse me, electronic and mechanical going on at the same time. There's wires going all over the place, capacitors that blow, erupt that you need to replace, and uh, transformer and the power supply. There's just, oh, and uh, on the synth, don't forget the uh, little LCD panels, the backlit stuff. So that is why I never even bothered getting the uh, Ensonic repaired. Oh, and another thing, too, is that because of the bungling over the years with the way Ensonic did itself... Uh, let's see if I can remember this correctly. Okay, Ensonic was acquired by EMU, which was acquired by Creative Labs. So I, you can probably do this now, but part of the reason why Ensonics can't be restored, at least the SQ, is that you can't get the schematic. Not that I know how to read a schematic, but if I was going to get the synth fix, I'd have to bring it to an electrician. Who, any good electrician worth his salt, can read a schematic. So I'd say, okay, this. But if I give him the Ensonic SQ1 and say, fix this, the first question he's going to say is, where's the schematic? I don't have it. I can't even get it. So that's why they can't, can't get repaired. So anyway, ugh, I'm bouncing around all over the place here. On to the Elisa's Fusion 6HD. The Ensonic finally broke, so I was looking around something that was low price, relatively low priced, and um, had all the features I wanted. And the Elisa's Fusion 6HD was available. Oh, and I did not want full weighted keys. I don't like that. I like the um, what I call them slotted keys. 
because they look like slots to me, but they're uh, not full weighted. They're you know they have no full weights. To, they're not piano style keys. They're synth style keys, basically. I call them slotted keys. Six HD and the eight HD, by the way, does have the full weighted keys. So uh, and six, I pref- my preference is the sixty one key workstation synth. And before anyone says anything, no, I do not do sequencing on the computer. I don't do that because it's just not the same. Anyone that does synthesizer workstation stuff knows what I'm talking about when you it is better to have the whole thing encompassed in a single unit rather than have something connected to the computer and bounce and bounce and bounce and bounce and bounce around. It's a pain in the ass. The same way it's a pain in the ass to record to the computer when you can just have a standalone unit that just does the job and does it with no complaint. The same thing applies to the synth workstation. So, And yeah, I know that is not the way people usually record music. I understand that. That's not the modern way. I don't care because I prefer to have the whole thing in this, like for example, you can, if you wanted to, download an original Korg M1 uh, virtual synth. Those suck. They just, everything about them sucks. Does it sound the same? Yes, it sounds exactly the same. But that's not the point. You don't get the feel of it. You don't get the feel of that Korg display, the feel of Korg keys. And I don't even like the M1, but if I was going to get one, I would get the real thing. And not this virtual piece of crap, because it is crap. Because if all it is is, oh, well, this is the Korg M1 thing, and here's all the original sounds, it sounds identical to it, but you don't. It's not the same. It's just not the same. Where was I going with this? Yeah, God, keep bouncing around with this. So the Fusion 6 HD, $1,000, with free shipping to be exact, so that's what I paid. $1,000 for that, and I paid for that years ago. I was so good at it that when I released it, I went... Uh, I got the attention of Elisis themselves, who did in fact release my music on their website. Yes, really, that really did happen. No, I didn't get paid for it. I did it as, oh, I, I thought it was cool. So I said, sure, take my stuff, put it on your website. So yes, that in fact means I was a featured Elisis product artist. I did demo the actual product through my music. So that was pretty neat. When I put the synth down, there were a lot of people that were like, oh, where'd you go? Where's all your synth stuff? Why are you doing all this guitar stuff now? Because all these, now I'm known as a guitar player. But for a while, you know, a few years, people were like, oh, this guy on this Elisa's Fusion, he's amazing. I'm not saying that to be conceited. That's what people are saying about me. And it had such an impact that there are people that still remember, that remember me to this day as playing keys and not the git. Okay, fast forward to present. Man, that was a long roundabout way of explaining that, but I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't explain the whole story, even if that did bounce around quite a bit and it was in brief. So if you want to ask me about it further, you can email me or whatever. Okay, so, right. I uh, had the fusion and i released a few songs they were on the elisa's website now they're no longer on the website they've been taken down because i think the product is discontinued and all that so there's no reason to have them there i whatever you know it happens products come products go so now this brings me to the point of recovering data and all this other stuff that i talked about in the beginning right okay so now the uh the first guy 
that excuse me, the second guy, because I wanted to talk about him first. He actually asked me, what would you, I recommend for a modern workstation synthesizer? And believe it or not, my answer is Casio. I know it sounds crazy, but I'll put it to you this way. Casio makes this unit, there's several of them actually, the CTK3200, CTK6000, CTK7000. Now, from this is going to blow your mind, because if you see normal workstation synthesizers, they price usually starting at about $1,500. These things are not cheap. These are. The 7000 is $349. The 6000 is 199 The 3200 is 129 The 2300 is $99. $100. And uh, that's... That is amazing. Like, okay, I'll put it to you this way. The 6000 which is probably the one I'd recommend, that's the $200 one, 61 keys, 670 built-in tones, 48-note polyphony, which is pretty good, uh, digital effects, and here was the big deal about it, is that it actually, first of all, it has a rhythm ed- editor, which is good. It has obviously has MIDI. It's very light. It's it's under 13 pounds. I'm trying to think if this is the one that actually had the sequencer. One of these actually has a real deal sequencer in it, which makes that qualifies it as a workstation at that point. If it has a sequencer, it's a workstation. All right, let's look at the 7000 model, which is 350. Yes, that's the one. CTK 7000 from Casio, $350. Okay? And... It is an arranger. It's classified as an arranger, which usually means home piano. This is way more than a home piano. Um, you've got your onboard sequencer, 800 sounds, piano. So it's got full-weighted keys. Eh, I don't like that, but I deal with it anyway. USB, MIDI, um, 15 effects. you got reverb, chorus, harmonize. Actually, wait a minute. It says sequencer, no. That I'm, I'm looking at the Sweetwater description. It says sequencer, no, but then above it it says sequencer, yes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this does it. Wait a minute, let me read the, the description. If you want hundreds of astonishing keyboard sounds, impressive playability, handy portability, and a single instrument that won't break the bank, look no further. Casio's amazing 61-key CTK7000 delivers. This outstanding and conveniently compact keyboard gives you 800 instrument sounds among the variety of ex- external... Ex- essential sounds are 50 drawbar, drawbar organ tones that are controllable with onboard sliders. That's actually a pretty cool feature making the CTK7000 per- for performance. Oh, right here. There is, there, uh, they even got the English incorrect. It says there are also, and it should be there is, there is also an onboard sequencer and USB connectivity to fit the recording and songwriting musician's production needs. Now, for 300, so it does have one. For $350, you cannot go wrong with this. You can't. Now, as a comparison, if I was to do the next, I'll just say, okay, what would be the cheapest workstation? I'll tell you what that is in just a moment. Uh, I'm pricing it right now as I'm recording this. Oh, actually, no. Korg and Yama. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm going to make a correction here. There are actually several of them that have busted under the $1,000 price point. The lowest priced one, which is just 50 bucks more than the Casio actually, is the Korg MicroStation. 
compact synth workstation, 120 voice polyphony. Weighs under six pounds. My God, this thing is really light. Jeez, I might even consider buying this. Yeah. All right, cool. All right, so I, I was wrong. It, you can get several of them for under fifteen hundred. Start. That's four hundred bucks. Yamaha MX forty nine. That's six hundred dollars. One thousand sounds VCM effects sixteen channel. DAW integration. Not that I give a crap about that, but it has it. Motif. That's the big thing with uh, Yamaha. Is a thing called Motif. M O T I F. Uh, tools. You need to use a thousand sounds. Take. Yep. 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 Kind of small, but it's easy. I love the fact that the they've gone back to the old style LCD displays. That's six hundred bucks, and then you have the Korg Cross. That's K R O S S sixty one seven hundred. Yamaha MX sixty one, which is eight hundred. Teenage Engineering. I, I don't like this thing. The OP one. There are some people that love that thing. I hate that thing. It's gone down in price significantly, actually. And then uh, rounding out the field at under a thousand or just under a thousand is the Roland GW eight Korg Cross eighty eight, Korg Chrome sixty one. Casio, whoa, this is an up-to-do Casio right here. Casio Privia, P-R-I-V-I-A, P-X-5-S, Korg Chrome 70, oh, nope, and then it goes over a 1,000 at that point. But when you want to start out really cheap, you can go with the, uh, oh, I'm liking this Casio Privia. That's nice. That's actually really nice. It's a very, very stylish-looking thing, too. But anyway, uh, if I were to pick... One out of this bunch would probably be the MX-61 from Yamaha, just because um, I like it better than the way Korg does things. Although that microstation, not bad. I like the fact it's super light, too. But then you have the Casios, which go really low. So I still recommend the Casios, though, because they're designed to be easy. That's the difference between a pro workstation and like a, a uh, what's called a home arranger. But there's the thing, the CTK-7000... I think that's the model name of what I said a moment ago. It's got it. It's, yeah. People look at Casio, they're like, oh, Casio, cheap. Well, take another look. That's all I'm going to say is take another look, especially at the Privia PX5S. That's, and that's a thousand bucks right there. 88 keys. Um, phase sequencing. Hands-on controls. Onboard effects. Sampling. Scaled hammer weighted action. So that, yeah, what that means, by the way, that really feels like real piano keys at that point. Then it's got the full 88, which is uh, a grand piano style. Eight-track sequencer. You can trigger with it, obviously. Yeah, it says right here, realistic piano feel from Tri-Sensor Springless 88-key scaled hammer action key bed. Man, we've come along a long way. Okay, sorry, I'm bouncing around again. So anyway, the Casio is what I recommend. Now the other guy, the former, I just explained the latter, the former, he wanted to know, uh, he asked me about this song called The Sword, which you heard at the beginning of this podcast, by the way, a little clip of it. Okay, and here's the interesting story about that nonsense. Okay, you'll understand why I said nonsense in a moment. Okay, so... I said to myself, I, I, the guy wrote me about it. I wrote him back. I said, yeah, I probably got it on a backup somewhere. I'll dig it out and release it for public 
I don't know why I didn't release it for public sooner. Actually, yes, I do know why. Because I didn't have the bandwidth at the time, and I didn't have SoundCloud or things like that. But now I do. Okay, anyway. So I go through my backup drive. It's not there. Uh, I go through all my DVD backups. Not there. I'm like, oh, no. What will I do? So then I go onto my website, my FTP, uh, my w- web server, to see if I actually uploaded those MP3s there. And I did, but they were only low-fi versions of it, not high-fi versions. I'm like, oh, no. This sucks. Did I lose them forever? I thought I had. Well, in an act of desperation, I actually drug out the fusion. <laughs> I said, okay, I know I saved the songs I wrote on that Elisa's Fusion 6HD to its internal hard drive. It actually does have an internal hard drive. I said, all right, let's see if it's there. So I fire it up. And the first problem is I didn't even remember how to load a song on this thing. That's how long it's been since I've used it. So I said, okay, this is going to be a learning curve. So I eventually figured out how to get songs open, whatever, which is I hit the global button and then items and songs and, okay, then I have my selections. And there it was, the sword. I said, oh, my God, this is great. I actually have the raw, uh, the actual raw sequence. So I assumed all the patches would match up. So I loaded it up, plugged in a set of headphones to the back of it, played it, and da-da, there it was. I'm like, yeah! <laughs> so, and then I realized why I never actually backed it up to a WAV file. is because I had them on the synth. Kind of dumb to do it that way, but I did do it that way. And that is just a small example of what it means to go through trials and tribulations of trying to get old recordings resurfaced and digitized. Well, actually, it started out digital, but anyway digitized and put on the internet and things like that. So my advice to anyone who records, regardless, regardless of what you use, back that shit up. Seriously, back it up. Like whenever you record a YouTube video, back up the raw file, the original video. Whenever you create uh, music sequences, back that up. Now, here is something that I'm going to explain. A lot of people do not take this into consideration at all. And this is actually very important. Very, very important. Okay. And it's also a reason, by the way, why standalone recorders are better. You'll understand what I mean by that in a second. Okay. Let's just say you have a computer... Let's just say you use your computer to record with. A lot of people do that. That's fine. Here's the thing. Five years from now, if not less, you are probably going to be using a totally different computer with a totally different operating system using totally different software. So what that means is that whatever you're using now will not be around in five years. Or less. Here's the problem with that, and you probably already have guessed this before I'm actually, before I'm going to say it. Let's just say you wanted to open up some of those old recording sessions. Well, if you don't have the old computer, what do you do? And you don't have the old software, what do you do? You're screwed. You can't load it. What you should do is if you use a computer to record with, is to actually 
write up a small text file, be it in Notepad or Word or whatever, even an email uh, that you can store in a sa- in an archive folder, whatever. That is simply a checklist of everything needed to actually load that file. For example, if uh, you were using, I don't know, oh, Audacity. We'll just use that. Let's just say right now you have a, a computer. Let's just say it's an older computer with Windows XP. So you have a computer with Windows XP. You got to write that down. PC, Windows, uh, excuse me, OS colon Windows XP. That's the part of the text file you write. Software, Audacity. Put down the version number. Audacity version. Um, as, in fact, I'm recording this with Audacity right now, and I'm using version. 2.0.3. Okay, so you write down that 2.0.3, and for any installer files you have for that software, save that shit. So OS Windows XP Audacity version 2.0.3 installer file. You put that right next to the text file. Either put that on a thumbstick like a USB pen drive, or put it on the cloud in SkyDrive, Dropbox, Box.net. Uh, whatever, you know, you even email it to yourself if it's not too big of a file, whatever. And then you have the documentation for what it, what you need to actually load that, uh, session. Now, of course, now you're thinking, I don't need any of this. I'll remember. Not in five years, you won't. Seriously, even like with my Fusion 6 HD, I had to actually sit there and think about how do I load a song on this thing. It had I haven't touched the uh, Fusion in probably about a year, and in even as little as a year, you start forgetting stuff. And it's not because you're getting older. Like if you if you're 16 and you turn 17, because you forgot something you did a year ago, doesn't mean you're going stupid and senile. You're only 17 years old. It just means you haven't done it in a while. So you gotta oh shit. What am I going to do? You go back to your documentation. That's the BS you have to go through when you have to load old stuff. The same thing applies for like uh, for guys that transitioned from tape. And I got a ton of recordings on tape that I have to I haven't even bothered to transfer over because I have to actually go out and buy a vintage Tascam 424 to do it. <laughs> That's a purchase for a later date. But anyway, strictly speaking, in the digital realm here. What happens is that you have to you have to document all your stuff if you're doing it from the PC because in a year from now, like say you didn't touch it, if you're using the same computer a year from now, you're not going to forget anything because you're still using the same computer. But let's just say this was the year you decided to get rid of your old computer or laptop and get a new one. You have to document all the stuff that happened on the old computer for your audio session files. And if you have paid software like Easy Drummer or any of these DOS softwares, you have to not only take that stuff down, but if you paid for it, you have to write down the registered name, the registered serial number. It's a pain in the ass. The easiest way to do it, actually, is to throw it all onto a thumb drive, not a DVD, because that can actually get scratched and screw your life up, something fierce. So you throw it all on the... I mean, how much does it cost for a 32-gigabyte thumbstick? Actually, I'll tell you, and I'll link this, too. Uh, let's see here. 32 gigabyte flash drive is. I'm waiting for the first result. 
25 bucks. I'm sorry, you can go even lower. 20 bucks. So for $20, <laughs> you can have 32 gigs of storage. And believe me when I say every single bit of your recorded music can easily fit on 32 gigs. Now just to put that in comparison, a DVD 5, which is the most common recordable DVD people get, that's 4.7 gigabytes. So if you do 32 divided by 4.7, it's 6.8 DVDs worth, or roughly 7. So you have like roughly 7 DVDs worth of storage on that one little 32 gig flash drive. You owe it to yourself to buy one. Or at least to put it onto, <clears throat> excuse me, a backup drive. Either way is fine. So, yeah. Now, why does this make the standalone recorder so much better? Very easy answer. Nothing changes. No matter what computer you go through, doesn't matter. Because the standalone is always there. The standalone just sits there and records to a single SD card. For example, the Tascam DP008 that I use. uses a single SD card, and I only have 8 gigs in that thing. I'll probably upgrade it to 16 to 32. Right now, I don't have to, because even with 8, you have something like ridiculous amount of recording time. So it, it doesn't matter. But the point is, is that no matter... it, uh, The point is, is that it skirts the technology curve. No matter what happens, no matter where technology goes, you can go to that little Tascam, hit the power button, turn it on, and it is, it is exactly the way you left it. All your data is there, stored on that little flash drive. And if you're paranoid about it, whereas you say, oh, what if the unit crashes one day or ceases to function? Okay, fine. Take the, uh, take this, uh, SD card out of it, back it up. And if the unit breaks one day, let's just say five, ten years from now, the unit breaks, buy another one true. It won't be in production anymore, but you know there's going to be some guy on eBay selling one, and it'll probably just be a hundred bucks or less. Probably boxed condition new. Or, if you want to go even further than that, buy another one now. And just never open it. Or, open it once to make sure it works, and then box it back up. Then, use your other one until it breaks, which will be in probably about seven, eight, ten years, whatever. And then when that breaks, oh, I'm almost screwed. No, you're not. Take out the other one, open it up, plug it in, and you're back in business. Wabo. Right there. That's the beauty of using standalone recorders is that no matter what happens to computing, that thing will stay the same. And that is a beautiful thing. It is a very beautiful thing. This is why I try to tell people I've been... And yeah, I get in arguments with people about this on the Internet. I'm like, dude, your PC's going bye-bye in five years. No, it won't, no, it won't. Yes, it will. First, PCs are going away, and everyone's going to laptops. I use a laptop as my primary computer, a ThinkPad Edge E430. That's what I use. I don't use a PC at all. Nope. I have one, but it's all in pieces because it broke. The power supply failed. I got sick of PCs. I'm like, I'm sick of fixing this. I'm sick of it. So I got a ThinkPad. And yeah, it broke too. But 
Here's the difference. I paid $19 to Lenovo for a one-year on-site warranty. Guess what happened when my ThinkPad broke? The little trackpad is, went wonky, by the way. That's what went wrong with it. I called Lenovo. They sent a guy out the next day and fixed it right in my place. That's awesome. And by the way, that's why Mac sucks. <laughs> okay, I have to... I. I have to jab Apple a little bit here. Here's why a MacBook sucks when anything else. It has nothing to do with the operating system. It has nothing to do with the build quality of the unit. It has everything to do with the fact that Apple does not offer on-site warranty for anything they make, unless you're a corporate customer and you have to buy something like a 1,000 units to be a corporate customer. Now, the first thing people are going to say, hey, there's Apple Care. You can buy extended Apple Care. That does not include on-site. All that does is extend your warranty. Here's what happens when your MacBook breaks, and it will break. It will. It's a computer. It will break. You will have to call Apple or drag your ass to the Apple Store to have it fixed, even if it's within three months. You'll have to drag your ass to the Apple Store to get the damn thing fixed. And there's no other option. None. Oh, you can call Apple. Say, can you send a guy to my house? They'll say, no. They don't do it. They don't do it. If you buy Dell, if you buy Lenovo, I suggest Lenovo, actually, because they make a damn good unit. Lenovo or Dell or uh, pretty much any of the other laptop manufacturers, notebook manufacturers. Now, with Lenovo, if you bought a ThinkPad from Newegg, for example and just buy it standard, and then go to Lenovo's website the day you receive it and pay 19 extra dollars, you've got one year on site. If you want to extend that to two or even three years, you can do it. You can do it. That's freaking awesome. Which means when it breaks, you call Lenovo, and you will be transferred to their call center in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. Thank you very much. Not to some call center overseas in the U.S. Because Lenovo was awesome like that. Then you say, yeah, I got a problem with this. You explain it to them. It's, just, it's not, um, not what, what do you call it? Uh, not accidental damage. This is a defect with the unit. Okay, we'll send a guy out tomorrow. And they do. And it gets fixed. You only have downtime of less than 24 hours. How awesome is that? And that's on consumer grade units. That's not even pro grade. Not even business class. That's on consumer grade to do that too. And, and they do that on their tablets too. So if you have something to screw up with your tablet, like a, a idea pad, I think they call it, or, yeah, or they just call it a ThinkPad tablet, you can get the same kind of warranty for that too. That's freaking awesome. Anyway, sorry, I went on that tangent about Lenovo. Jeez. Or Apple, I should say. Okay, back to what I was saying. All right, so if you have a Tascam DP008 or you have any type of standalone recorder, and uh, because it is standalone and does not change, it always remains the same. The only thing you will have to do if you decide to put the unit down for a while and not use it is to simply type up a document and print it or write it down with a pen and paper. If you have, there's any specific thing that you think of that you might need to remember in the future, you just... All you do is just write a little note and then take a piece of scotch tape and just tape it to the bottom of the unit. So you can just look at, look at the bottom one day and say, oh, how do I do this? Oh, and let me look at the paper. Oh, yeah, that's how I do that. You do have to document this stuff because if you don't, you'll forget how to do shit 
And you'll be like, oh man, I know I used to do that. Oh, I can't remember. Oh, oh, this and that. Like I said, that has nothing to do with age. When you walk away from something for a while and come back to it, such as what happened with my Alesis Fusion 6HD, and I know a lot about synths. I wrote a book about the Fusion, for God's sakes. And I forgot how to use the damn thing. And I'm not even 40. (laughs) Sheesh. So anyway. Oh, yeah, and when it comes to your uh, music data that you have right now, your software, your WAV files, or your AIFF files, if you're using a Mac, or your uh, session data, all that stuff, you need to, like I said, I think the best way to back that stuff up is to go and buy a 32-gig flash drive. Or if you want to save some money, you can even go with a 16. Let me see how much a 16-gig is. I know that's... Probably just ten bucks. And think about this while I'm looking this up. Think about this. Is it worth it? Is it worth ten bucks to back up your music? Of course it is. No kidding. Okay, what we got here? Yeah, about fifteen dollars. I just get the thirty-two. That small little thing. Just put it in there, whatever, and call it a day. Just remember to back up your stuff every now and then. I mean, you've been told over and over again throughout the years when it comes to computer stuff, uh, back up your stuff, back up your documents. But no one ever says that about your music stuff. Same thing. It's just a different type of application. Whether you're using a digital audio workstation, software, wave files, Audacity, whatever, a combination of all of the above, yeah, you got a document. Oh, here's another thing to document too. If you connect your devices in a specific way, like if you have a little mixer on the side, uh, or you have some type of USB direct connector, something like that, you got to document that too. You have to, because just imagine you you have your setup, and just imagine for a moment you had to walk away from that for not even five years, two years. You don't touch that stuff for two years. Could you even remember half of how to set all that crap up in two years if you didn't touch it? No, of course you couldn't. No one could. Maybe you remember some of it. Okay, well, I have to... The interface goes here, and this goes here, and... Oh, I don't... What was that thing in that software, that setting? Oh, I don't remember... Because you didn't document it. You didn't document it, and you didn't save your crap proper. So now you forgot. And now you can't load your session file... So your music is gone. Essentially, that's you may be able, may be able to piece it together a little bit. It's not going to be the same. You got to document that stuff. And again, that is a nod to the standalone recorder because all that requires is to power it on, a set of headphones, and a little slip of paper taped to the bottom to tell you how to set some certain faders or whatever knobs. That's it. So it's a lot easier than to. Uh, recover stuff, so to speak, from the standalone. Now, I was very fortunate in the fact that my Fusion 6HD had all the original data on it. That was very lucky. The hard drive in the unit could have crashed or corrupted beyond repair. It didn't. It still operates the same way it does. And uh, put this way, the unit's over five years old now. Actually, how old is that thing? It's got to be well over five. Hold on. I could do the math on this one. I think I bought it in 2006. 
So that would make it, uh, oh, I'm suck at math. Six years old. Right? No, seven. Okay, so, yeah, 2013 minus 2006, that's seven years. And hard drives usually don't last past five years. They don't. So that's, that's a seven-year-old hard drive sitting in that thing. And that means I gotta get, now, fortunately, what I can do is I do have a CF card in it. So I'm gonna, first I'm gonna back up, copy all that stuff to the CF card in case the drive fails. And then I'm actually going to record the digital audio after that. The one you heard at the beginning of this podcast was the lo-fi version. I'll get the hi-fi versions out soon. But yeah, it's, uh, I, I got lucky. <laughs> Essentially, I got lucky. Sometimes when you go back to old recordings, they go corrupted beyond repair. So that is yet another reason to back up your stuff and just have it readily accessible to you. Flash is the best way to store stuff, because if you put it on a hard drive, there's moving parts. And it's like I said, to have a drive last five, any drive that's in regular use, to have that last past five to seven years is usually pretty slim at best. Uh, A consumer-grade DVD is about, if you take immaculate care of it, and assuming it's a good brand, like verbatim, about eight to ten years, about, uh, if it's Taiyo Yudin, I know it sounds like a weird name, but th- that's the best uh, DVD media you can buy. That'll last about 15 years. Flash storage, if you take care of it and don't access it you know, too much, if you just store stuff to it and then chuck it in a drawer or whatever, and keep it out of moisture's way. Bare minimum, 10 years. Even for the cheapest piece of crap pen drive you can get. You don't even have to have a quality one. You can have a crappy one, and it'll still last 10 years, as long as you don't beat the crap out of it. Um, Most people, actually, at this point, do not know how long one is supposed to last. I mean, we know that it has a limited number of file rights, that much is true, but as far as physical longevity, it's like I said, as long as you keep it in a dry place and don't use it too often, like maybe... I don't know, once a month, whatever. And if you use it via an extender cable, instead of plugging the uh, direct port so you don't have to rub those contacts, uh, that'll extend it even longer. And, yeah, you might be listening to this and say, man, that's really paranoid, man. I mean, no, it's not. Because if you lose your music, any of your music, it sucks. It totally sucks. Why would you want that to happen? You should be paranoid about it. Well, maybe not paranoid, but you should take the necessary steps to back that stuff up. It's a digital world, people, uh, which means you can move data back and forth between places, so do it. I mean, not that hard to do. So, anyway, that's it. Oh, my God, I went on for over 40 minutes. Holy crap. Huh. Maybe I should make this into an hour show, but I'm not, because I'm done talking. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Radio Free Menga. My name is Rich Menga. I can be emailed at richatmenga.net. You can read my blog at www.menga.net. You can see me on Twitter at twitter.com slash richmenga. I am also on Facebook at facebook.com slash richmenga. Thanks for listening. Take it easy.